0: Welcome to God's Planning, contemplative preachers, contemporary age. Each week, join the Dominican friars as they consider all things Catholic.
1: Welcome to God's Planning in this Sunday episode. I am Father Jacob Bertrand Janzik. I'm joined with uh, by Father Gregory Pine and Father Patrick Briscoe. As we said last week, last Sunday, we thought that during this time when masses have been canceled and uh, many of us are Stuck at home, that it would be um, fruitful, helpful for us, and for you to perhaps walk through the Sunday readings together. So, as we dive into the readings of the fourth Sunday of Lent, Father Gregory is going to uh, kick us off with the collect for this week's Mass. In the name of the Father, and of the
2: Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. O God, who through your word reconcile the human race to yourself in a wonderful way, grant, we pray, that with prompt devotion and eager faith, the Christian people may hasten toward the solemn celebrations to come. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen.
1: A reading from the first book of Samuel. The Lord said to Samuel, fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem, for I have chosen my king from among his sons. As Jesse and his sons came to the sacrifice, Samuel looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is here before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not judge from his appearance or from his lofty stature, because I have rejected him. Not as man sees, does God see, because man sees the appearance, but the Lord looks into the heart. In the same way, Jesse presented seven sons before Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen any one of these. Then Samuel asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? Jesse replied, There is still the youngest who is tending the sheep. Samuel said to Jesse, Send for him. We will not begin the sacrificial banquet until he arrives here. Jesse sent and had the young man brought to him brought to them. He was ruddy, a youth handsome to behold, and making a splendid appearance. The Lord said, "There anoint him, for this is the one." Then Samuel, with the horn of oil in hand, anointed David in the presence of his brothers, and from that day on, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David, the Word of the Lord. thanks be to, thanks God.
0: be to God
1: so in reading this, we see
2: a scriptural theme that emerges with some frequency as we kind of wend our way through the Sunday readings, namely that the Lord will often choose those who are young, those who are weak, those who are otherwise, I suppose, unknown, uh, and he does so with deliberate purpose. Well, why? I suppose on the one hand we can say this, that if the Lord were to choose the strong, if we were to choose the accomplished, if we were to choose the competent, then there might be some ambiguity or some confusion as to how that person succeeds or by whose power. But when he chooses to work through the youngest and the weakest, it's evident that it's the Lord, uh, namely His grace, that bears that person on. So here we see this emerge, and I was just thinking, uh, this past week we celebrated the Feast of Saint Joseph, and I was thinking about what it means to be a saint um, in a time that might not present the ordinary circumstances during which we imagine sanctity to arise. So a lot of folks here are you know, frustrated that they're not able to go to mass very deeply saddened. Um, not only is it a huge part of their life, but it is their life. And especially when it feels like we're very, very concerned for bodily health, when we should be just as equally or far more concerned about spiritual health, that there can be a frustration that um, I'm being deprived of the, of the very things that I need to become holy. All right, Father Gregor, I've said a lot of things that don't seem related. Let's bring it together. This is a kind of instance in which the Lord is choosing us in circumstances that are weak, that are morally ambiguous, that are strange, in order to show how his grace is sufficient. So while we would like to be, you know, like St. Maximilian Kolbe, who is a very clear example of good in the midst of very clear evil, I think sometimes we're called to be more like St. Joseph in this regard. So you can think about how St. Joseph, um, you know, his vocation to us, it seems brilliant and excellent. But in his own time, it would have been something that was very perplexing for those with whom he lived. Because I suppose many would have thought that he was unable to wait till marriage uh, in order to, you know, that that he would have consummated his marriage with Mary before they were in fact married, or that he was content to marry someone who would step outside of the marriage. So there's some real strangeness there, and his fidelity is expressed in strange circumstances. So in our own situation, while we often feel like, yeah, I wish that it were some other test. I wish it were some other trial that I were being asked to endure rather than the trial of not receiving the sacraments. Yet we know that the Lord chooses the young. He chooses the weak. And he's able to operate even in morally strange circumstances to draw out what is good from what is so manifestly evil.
0: Not as, not as man sees does God see. Uh, man sees the appearance, but the Lord looks into the heart. Um, This is, for me, one of my actually very favorite verses in the entire Old Testament. I just think it's an incredible passage of Scripture where where we're reminded that our view of things is so different than God's view. Um, God's knowledge of our hearts is direct, it's immediate, it's perfect. Um, There's nothing about human nature that's a surprise or that is confusing to God. Um, God doesn't see things in a kind of surface way. God sees creation, um, his whole creation, according to the essence of things that he has created. God's, God's knowledge and sight um, and seeing penetrates. The Lord looks into our hearts. He knows what's there. And um, far more than all of this, what is, what's absolutely shocking is the Lord looks into the depths of our hearts and is not repulsed. Uh, right, <laughs> rightly, the Lord... Rightly, many many would be repulsed, you know, if they if they were to know truly what looks what lurks in the depths of our hearts. Um, but the Lord is not. The Lord continues to um, call us to the noble vocation of of loving and participating in life with Him, of being united to Him. Um, so the Lord looks into the depths of our hearts. He sees what's there. He doesn't judge by appearances, and still calls us to something very great, something very grand, um, inviting us to to life with Him.
1: In the in the sort of mire or in the thick of, of life, it's often hard to see the way in which our Lord works. And I think this is, uh, in in a way, what what Father Patrick was just just mentioning—that the Lord sees into our hearts, and He has His judgment is is not our judgment. It's bigger than our judgment. But the, this passage from from the Book of Samuel also shows us. As do so so much of as does so much of the scripture that that the Lord is at work despite our um, inability to perceive or to see the way in which the Lord is working um, that mm-hmm. His plan is unfolding even when we're not aware of the intricacies and the details and the twists and turns of how providence works um, even when we when we think that we know when we think that we know um, how things will play out when we think that we, our, our plans are going to, to win the day, um, sometimes that's true, sometimes it's not. But in the end, what is, what is true above all this is, is that our Lord's providence is always at work and it doesn't leave us wanting, it doesn't leave us abandoned. In fact, it's, it's just the opposite, it's just the opposite. Mm.
0: The second reading um, is a reading from the letter of St. Paul to the Ephesians. Brothers and sisters, you were once darkness but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for light produces every kind of goodness and righteousness and truth. Try to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the fruitless works of darkness. Rather, expose them. For it is shameful even to mention the things done by them in secret, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible. For everything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. The word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. I love this theme that St. Paul uses throughout his letters of the sort of then and now, the, the, the play between what was and what is, and what was before the new dispensation in Christ and what is now alive and and ready and available in the new covenant and, and the grace that Christ offers us. One of the things that St. Paul touches on here in his letter to the Ephesians, um, or at least alludes to, is is the difficulty or the, the seeming pain that living in the light might begin with, um, the sort of challenge that conversion is for us to break from our old patterns, um, our old sort of vices and, and sinful ways to live in a light that first exposes those things, but also um, calls us to live a life of goodness and virtue, and um, and a light of grace. And I think one thing that we have to remember is that um, our actions define us as human beings. What we do constitutes our character and who we are. You know, the virtuous person is virtuous because they act virtuously. Or a, a, a different example, you know, a liar is a liar because he tells lies. know what we do how we live and how we act um, makes us makes us who we are the light of christ we have to remember that the light of christ calls us from our habits of vice and sin from a sort of comfortable mediocrity of this is who i am and this is where it is and there's no sort of sense in changing or that the conversion is half-hearted the light of that that light pierces to all the corners all the recesses of our hearts and who we are and what we do the beauty of that though and the beauty of of the light that saint paul speaks of is um, it's not that it's a light that simply shines to embarrass it's not a light that simply exposes to sort of point out our faults but it's a light that that does expose our weaknesses and our in our brokenness and our sinfulness but it's a it's a light that into which we're called to live it's the source um, It's the source of our Christian dignity. We're called to live in that light who is not, no one else but Jesus Christ. This beautiful line at the end, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, uh, and Christ will give you light. Uh, um, scholars think that it was from perhaps like an old and ancient Christian hymn that St. Paul is quoting or a part of a baptismal liturgy from this time. And really beautiful to kind of meditate on, especially in these times when we're kind of you know, when, when our hands are tied in the way that we're living um, that the Lord is still calling us to live in his light, even in different circumstances.
2: I'm reminded uh, whenever we have discussions of light, I'm reminded of some passages from the Paradiso. So Dante's divine comedy divided up in those three parts that take you through hell and purgatory and heaven as Virgil. And then Beatrice leads Dante through each of those realms. And it's fascinating in, in hell, things are very bodily, you know, they're very corporeal. There's a lot of imagery that's used. That's almost crass uh, or violent. And then when you get to the purgatory, there's some indication that you're getting closer to uh, the ethereal realm of heaven. Like things begin to almost dematerialize. That's not to say that you like lose your body and there's no resurrection from the dead. We're not saying that It's just to say that things get more lightsome. Uh, So like there's this beautiful scene at the beginning where Dante recognizes one of his friends and he tries to hug him and then his arms pass through him. But once you get to um, once you get to paradise, once you get to heaven, the imagery is it's almost tortured because it's such an indescribable beauty that Dante almost finds his tongue, his tongue tied. So he'll talk. I can't remember in which circle it might be in the circle of the sun where you find the great theologians like St. Bonaventure and St. Thomas Aquinas. But he talks about them as light veiled in light or light which very shadow is itself light and i love that because it it brings at least to my attention uh this idea that we are light in light so christ is the light and we'll hear that in the gospel that he identifies himself as the light of the world but here it's also the case that we are light uh that we are somehow light illumined by the light and that's not only to say that we have a kind of share in god's divine life by grace But it is also to say that we're light towards the light. And so when St. Thomas Aquinas, for instance, would think about light, he talks about how light makes other things visible, right? When you walk into a room that's well lit, you don't remark on the fact, well, this is well lit or like there's some really nice indirect light going here. or Like, wait, thank God there are no fluorescents. You know, what what you note is that there are things to be seen on the desk or on the walls or otherwise. And so too, we as Christians make make something else visible, and what we are to make visible is the light of Christ. We're to make Christ visible. So we are, in a certain sense, light, veiling light. Uh, So all of the rich imagery that kind of pours out of the readings for the fourth Sunday in Lent seem to give us this indication, namely, that we are to be light, to live in the light, and to gesture towards the light.
0: Along with what Father Jacob Bertrand and Father Gregory have been saying, I'd like to echo the very joyful tone of the second reading. Um, It's jubilant and it speaks to um, the heart of the mystery of the fourth Sunday of Advent. Um, This liturgy begins with the antiphon, the the well known antiphon, Rejoice, Jerusalem, and all who love her. And for that reason, this Sunday is called Laetare Sunday. Um, Rejoice, Jerusalem! The the rejoicing Sunday. It's the Sunday of re- reprieve, the Sunday uh, uh, of joy, because we know that uh, we know that the Lenten mysteries are beginning to wane, and the Church is beginning to look um, toward all the glory of Easter. And um, Saint Paul here in the second reading um, really really captures that that jubilation, that joy, uh, that that sense of rejoicing that's proper, especially to the occasion of this Sunday.
2: All right, for our final reading, we'll read now from the gospel. Today's gospel passage is taken from the ninth chapter of the gospel of John. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to John. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, neither he nor his parents sinned. It was so that the works of God might be made visible through him. We have to do the works of the one who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva and smeared the clay on his eyes and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back able to see. His neighbors and those who had seen him earlier as a beggar said, isn't this the one who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is, but others said, no, he just looks like him. He said, I am. So they said to him, how are your eyes opened? He replied, the man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and told me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went there and washed and was able to see. And they said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. They brought the one who was once blind to the Pharisees. Now Jesus had made clay and opened his eyes on a Sabbath. So then the Pharisees also asked him how he was able to see. He said to them, he put clay on my eyes, and I washed, and now I can see. So some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a sinful man do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said to the blind man again, what do you have to say about him since he opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet, Now the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and gained his sight until they summoned the parents of the one who had gained his sight. They asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How does he now see? His parents answered and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. We do not know how he sees now, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He can speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone acknowledged him as the Christ, he would be expelled from the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, He is of age, question him. So a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give God the praise. We know that this man is a sinner. He replied, If he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know is that I was blind and now I see. So they said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? They ridiculed him and said, You are that man's disciple? We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but we do not know where this one is from. The man answered and said to them, This is what is so amazing, that you do not know where he is from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if one is devout and does his will, he listens to him. It is unheard of that anyone ever opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he would not be able to do anything. They answered and said to him, You were born totally in sin, and are you trying to teach us? Then they threw him out. When Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, he found him and said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered and said, Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and the one speaking with you is he. He said, I do believe, Lord, and he worshiped him. Then Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment, so that those who do not see might see, and those who do see might become blind. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard this and said to him, Surely we are not also blind, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you are saying, We see, so your sin remains. The Gospel of the Lord.
0: Praise to you, Lord Lord Jesus Jesus Christ. Christ. Just a few weeks ago on Ash Wednesday, um, each of us heard uh, the words spoken to us. Remember you are dust and to dust you shall return. How could we not um, contemplate more seriously our mortality um, in, in light of the great um, health crisis that we're facing? And yet what Jesus offers um, the man born blind today is uh, this the simple and ultimate truth that knowledge of God is in fact our greatest good. That's what he offers um, the man born blind to be able to be able to see, um, to be able to see the world for what it truly is, to be able to see um, Jesus Himself, to be able to see God for who he is. This is the, this is the great this is the great gift that Christ offers this man, um, knowledge of his greatest good to understand who Jesus is, and to have the grace um, to say, "I do believe, Lord," uh, to to make a profession of faith in Christ, uh, to be able to be able to confess Himself that I I, I believe um, that that God is my greatest good.
2: I think um, just to kind of run with that point. It's it's beautiful that the tone is set from the outset in just the way that you describe, because uh, the disciples ask whether or not uh, it was this man's sin or his parents' sin that merited for him such a punishment, and the Lord just cuts off that line of questioning. He says, you are not to adopt an accusatory tone when it comes to the assigning of blame, and so we might apply in our own circumstances, you know, this, there's a kind of great evil abroad, and what are we to do, or how are we to assign fault, or How are we to rectify it if we can't identify said fault? But the Lord just cuts off that line of questioning. He says, do not adopt an accusatory tone, rather adopt a contemplative tone, because this is not for the apportioning of punishment. Yes, I mean, evil enters the world by virtue of sin, but it's not like it's a one-to-one correspondence, like you commit X number of sins, therefore you are apportioned X number of punishments with X degree of, you know, difficulty, rather... The Lord permits these things to befall, says St. Augustine, so that he might draw from it something good. We might be so bold as to say something better, um, which is a terrible thought indeed, but something that we can contemplate at the feet of the Lord and by reading his scriptures. And so here, as he encounters this man, he is about a work not necessarily of assigning blame or expunging it in a kind of transactional way, but of drawing him into a relationship, of conforming him to himself, of opening his eyes, not only to the light of day, but also to the light of the faith.
1: One of the unique things that we have from the Gospel of John, we're, we're reading currently this weekend, and we had last weekend, and we'll have next Sunday too, these sort of long passages where Jesus interacts with with one person and leads them to believe in him. And in this in this passage from the ninth chapter of, of John, we have one of Jesus's I am sayings, right? And if you remember... God first identifies himself as I am in in Exodus to Moses in the the burning bush. And in the Gospel of John, there are seven of these sayings. Some are probably more familiar to us. You know, I'm the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection. I am the truth and the life. Um, And and, and, in John 8, just before the story of the man born blind, Christ identifies himself as the light of the world. I am the light of the world. And now in John 9, in the story of the man born blind, Our Lord shows us what that means to um, be the light of the world in himself, but also how that affects other people, particularly opening the man's eyes to to him. Um, The story of the man born blind, I think, begs a question about faith, and perhaps this is apropos of where we find ourselves now. And when St. Thomas talks about how we're moved in faith, he attributes both and external and internal causes so externally we could be moved by hearing a good homily or by seeing a miracle or by witnessing something of, of that but for according to st. Thomas that's that's not enough to be moved there's also an internal movement and, th- and that internal movement is God preparing the heart preparing the soul to um, receive faith to receive him it's it's a both and as, as we move in, in the life of faith um, that gift that gift of faith, of belief in in God, ultimately requires um, that encounter with our Lord, who works miracles, but who also moves our hearts to believe. And what I find, I think, most striking about this gospel is, is, is comes at the end. It's when the Lord returns to the man and the man sees his eyes open to the light, Is he himself opened to the light, that he recognizes and calls uh, Jesus the Christ. And worships him. Our Lord does all this work to prepare him to get him there, and it's in the end that that um, that he recognizes the Christ and, and falls down in worship. And uh, I think in this time, as we are again, you know, sort of as as we might feel kind of trapped or away from the mass and these sorts of things, to think, to thank God, take a moment to thank God for that gift of faith that we've been blessed with to different degrees. But the man born blind and our Lord's work here really shows what an incredible gift our faith and relationship with with our Lord is.
2: And I think uh, just to draw out that point even more, um, the communication of salvation is not just a matter of the Lord telling us about himself, but you can see how it actually begins to transform this man. So like you identified, the Lord throughout the course of the Gospel of John is identifying himself with this revelation in Exodus 3, that he is uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the living God, the only begotten Son of the Father. <clears throat> and it's fascinating what, when this man speaks, who is never identified by name, but when he speaks to identify himself to his peers who are asking whether or not it is the same, he says just two words, I am. And it, it seems almost as if uh, it's a mistake. That could not have been intended. But there are many other ways in the passage where you can see him conformed to Christ, made like Christ, um, I remember reading a, a homily of Pope Benedict where he talks about how, regardless of how you interpret the passage at the end of the Gospels, where Thomas seeks to you know, like see the Lord's wounds, to put his hands in those wounds. What we know now is that the Lord is not so much identified by his face as by his wounds. And so too, in this passage, the man is never named. He is consistently referred to as the man born blind. Even after he is healed of his blindness, he is recognized by the wound in his flesh, wherein he has met the Lord Jesus Christ, where he has touched the Lord Jesus Christ and been transformed to become like the Lord Jesus Christ. And there, you know, we see that the Lord, how does he bring this about? It says that he smears clay on his eyes, uh, but then the same act is later identified as an anointing. The same word is used in the Greek, and it means anointing. So the Lord, who is priest and prophet, Um, You know, you think of the Old Testament where all priests and prophets are anointed with oil goes about anointing this man to make him like him. It's kind of like a prefiguration of the baptismal intimacy that we too hope to enjoy. But it's not just he's not just communicating truths. He's actually saving him and saving him as a matter of drawing him near, of befriending him, of calling him up into his divine and human life.
1: So as we close on this fourth Sunday of Lent, this le sunday uh we want to just tell you yet again that we are continuing to keep you in our prayers that we are offering mass for all of you who are listening um pray for us too as sort of the uncertainty of you know how long we'll be in the state continues but um know that you are united to us in our prayers and uh, we ask you for the same thank you for tuning in and we'll have father patrick lead us out with the uh the post-communion prayer of this week's Mass. Let us pray.
0: O God, who enlighten everyone who comes into this world, illuminate our hearts, we pray, with the splendor of your grace, that we may always ponder what is worthy and pleasing to your majesty and love you in all sincerity. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
2: Thanks for listening to God's Planning, a work of the
0: Dominican Friars of the Province of St. Joseph. Visit us at opeast.org.